0: Hello, and welcome to She Speaks Volumes, the primer for 500 years of feminist writings. This is Episode 7. And it's all about anarchist and activist Emma Goldman's autobiography, Living My Life, Volume 1. In the next episode, we'll be looking at Volume 2. Emma Goldman was born in 1869 in Russia, now Lithuania, and emigrated to the States in 1885. By 1889, Goldman had left her husband for the second time and run off to New York City to support the anarchist movement. Late 19th century New York must have been an intense place, an influx of immigrants speaking languages from all over the world, recently emancipated African Americans that had come north looking for a better life, and all this against the backdrop of the forward thrust of capitalism the growing interest in unions and working associations for working class and poor people to protect their rights against this monstrosity of capitalism. Within months of her arrival, Emma Goldman became a leader of the anarchist movement, participating in direct action and becoming a public speaker. The excerpt I'm going to read is her memories after her first tour of public speaking. Excerpt from Chapter 5, Living My Life, Volume 1, by Emma Goldman. I had begged most not to give the time of my arrival to the German Union in Rochester before which I was to speak. I wanted to see my beloved sister Helena first. I had written her about my coming, but not the purpose of my visit. She met me at the station and we clung to each other as if we had been separated for decades. I explained to Helena my mission in Rochester. She stared at me open-mouthed. How could I undertake such a thing? Face an audience? I had been away only six months. What could I have learned in such a brief time? Where did I get the courage? And in Rochester, of all cities, our parents would never get over the shock. I had never before been angry with Helena. There had never had been occasion for it. In fact, it was always I who tried her patience to the breaking point. But the reference to our parents made me wroth. It brought back Papillon, Helena's crushed young love for Susha, and all the other ghastly pictures. I broke out in a bitter arraignment of our people, especially picking out my father, whose harshness had been the nightmare of my childhood and whose tyranny had held me even after my marriage. I reproached Helena for having allowed our parents to rob her of her youth. "'They came near to doing it to me, too,' I cried. I had finished with them when they joined the Rochester bigots and had cast me out. My life was now my own, the work I had chosen more precious to me than my life. Nothing could take me from it, least of all consideration for my parents. The pain in my darling's face checked me. I took her in my arms and assured her that there was nothing to worry about, that our family need not know about my plans. The meeting was to be only before a German union. No publicity would be connected with it. Besides, the Jews on St. Joseph Street knew nothing about the advanced Germans, or anything else for that matter, outside of their own colourless, petty lives. Helena brightened up. She said that if my public speech was as eloquent as my arguments to her, I would make a hit. When I faced the audience the next evening, my mind was a blank. I could not remember a single word of my notes. I shut my eyes for an instant. Then something strange happened. In a flash, I saw it. Every incident of my three years in Rochester, the Garson factory, its drudgery and humiliation, the failure of my marriage, the Chicago crime, the last words of August spies rang in my ears. Our silence will speak louder than the voices you strangle today. I began to speak. Words I had never heard myself utter before came pouring forth faster and faster. They came with passionate intensity. They painted images of the heroic men on the gallows, their glowing vision of an ideal life, rich with comfort and beauty. Men and women radiant in freedom, children transformed by joy and all affection. The audience had vanished. The hall itself had disappeared. I was conscious only of my own words, of my ecstatic song. I stopped. Tumultuous applause whirled over me. The buzzing of voices. People telling me something I could not understand. Then I heard someone quite close to me. It was an inspired speech, but what about the eight-hour struggle? You've said nothing about that. I felt hurled down from my exalted heights, crushed. I told the chairman I was too tired to answer questions, and I went home feeling ill in body and mind. I let myself quietly into Helena's apartment and threw myself on the bed in my clothes. Exasperation with most for forcing the tour on me, anger with myself for having so easily succumbed to his influence. The conviction that I had cheated the audience all seethed in my mind together with a new revelation. I could sway people with words, strange and magic words that welled up from within me from some unfamiliar depth. I wept with the joy of knowing. I went to Buffalo, determined to make another effort. The preliminaries of the meeting threw me into the same nervous tension— But when I faced the audience, there were no visions to inflame my mind. In an endless, repetitious manner, I made my speech about the waste of energy and time the eight-hour struggle involved, scoffing at the stupidity of the workers who fought for such trifles. At the end of what seemed to me several hours, I was complimented on my clear and logical presentation. Some questions were asked, and I answered them with a sureness that brooked no gainsaying. "'But on the way home from my meeting, my heart was heavy. "'No words of exultation had come to me, "'and how could one hope to reach others' hearts "'when one's own remained cold? "'I decided to wire most the next morning, "'begging him to relieve me of the necessity "'of going to Cleveland. "'I could not bear to repeat once more "'the meaningless prattle. "'After a night's sleep, my decision seemed childish and weak. "'How could I give up so soon?' Would most have given up like that? Would Sasha? Well, I too would go on. I took the train for Cleveland. The meeting was large and animated. It was a Saturday night, and the workers attended with their wives and children. Everybody drank. I was surrounded by a group, offered refreshments, and asked questions. How did I happen to come into the movement? Was I German? What was I doing for a living? The petty curiosity of people supposed to be interested in the most advanced ideas reminded me of the Rochester grilling on the day of my arrival in America. It made me thoroughly angry. The gist of my talk was the same as in Buffalo, but the form was different. It was a sarcastic arraignment, not of the system or of the capitalist, but of the workers themselves, their readiness to give up a great future for the small temporary gains. The audience seemed to be enjoying being handled in such an outspoken manner. They roared in some places, and in others vigorously applauded. It was not a meeting. It was a circus, and I was the clown. A man in the front row who had attracted my attention by his white hair and lean, haggard face rose to speak. He said that he understood my impatience with such small demands as a few hours less a day, or a few dollars more a week, it was legitimate for young people to take time lightly. But what were men of his age to do? They were not likely to live to see the ultimate overthrow of the capitalist system. Were they also to forego the release of perhaps two hours a day from the hated work? That was all they could hope to see realized in their lifetime. Should they deny themselves even that small achievement? Should they never have a little more time for reading or being out in the open? Why not be fair to people chained to the block? The man's earnestness, his clear analysis of the principle involved in the eight-hour struggle, brought home to me the falsity of most's proposition. I realized I was committing a crime against myself and the workers by serving as a parrot, repeating most's views. I understood why I had failed to reach my audience. I had taken refuge in cheap jokes and bitter thrusts against the toilers to cover up my own inner lack of conviction. My first public experience did not bring the result most had hoped for, but it taught me a valuable lesson. It cured me, somewhat, of my childlike faith in the infallibility of my teacher, and impressed on me the need of independent thinking. In New York, my friends had prepared a grand reception for me. Our flat was spotlessly clean and filled with flowers. They were eager for an account of my tour, and they felt apprehensive of the effect upon Most of my changed attitude. The next evening I went out with Most, again to the terrace garden. He had grown younger during my two weeks' absence. His rough beard was trimmed neatly, and he wore a natty new grey suit, a red carnation in his buttonhole. He joined me in a gay mood, presenting me with a large bouquet of violets. The two weeks of my absence had been unbearably long, he said, and he had reproached himself for having let me go just when we had grown so close. But now he would never again let me go. Not alone, anyhow. I tried several times to tell him about my trip. Hurt to the quick that he had not asked about it. He had sent me forth against my will, He had been so eager to make a great speaker of me. Was he not interested to know whether I had proved to be an apt pupil? Yes, of course, he replied. But he had already received the reports from Rochester that I had been eloquent, from Buffalo that my presentation had silenced all opponents, and from Cleveland that I had flayed the dullards with biting sarcasm. But what about my own reactions, I asked. Don't you want me to tell you about that?' Yes, another time. Now he only wanted to feel me near, his blondkoff, his little girl woman. I flared up, declaring I would not be treated as a mere female. I blurted out that I would never again follow blindly, that I had made a fool of myself that the five-minute speech of the old worker had convinced me more than all his persuasive phrases. I talked on, my listener keeping very silent. When I had finished... He called the waiter and paid the bill. I followed him out. On the street, he burst out into a storm of abuse. He had reared a viper, a snake, a heartless coquette who had played him like a cat with a mouse. He had sent me out to plead his cause, and I had betrayed him. I was like the rest, but he would not stand for it. He would rather cut me out of his heart right now than have me as a lukewarm friend. "'Who is not with me is against me,' he shouted. "'I will not have it otherwise.' "'A great sadness overwhelmed me, "'as if I had just experienced an irreparable loss. "'Returning to our flat, I collapsed. "'My friends were disturbed and did everything to soothe me. "'I related the story from beginning to end, "'even to the violets I had mechanically carried home. "'Sasha grew indignant. "'Violets at the height of winter?' "'With thousands out of work and hungry?' he exclaimed. "'He had always said that Most was a spendthrift, "'living at the expense of the movement. "'And what kind of a revolutionist was I, anyway, "'to accept Most's favours? "'Didn't I know that he only cared for women physically?' "'Most of the Germans were that way. "'They considered women only as females. "'I would have to choose once and for all "'between Most and him. "'Most was no longer a revolutionist.' He had gone back on the cause. Angrily he left the house and I remained bewildered and bruised with my newfound world in debris at my feet. A gentle hand took mine, led me quietly into my room, and left me. It was Vedja. <coughs> Living my life, was written in 1928, while Goldman was staying in a cottage in Saint-Tropez. The cottage and the money to support herself had been supplied by Peggy Guggenheim and a small group of American writers and artists that believed in the importance of Emma Goldman's work. I can imagine her staring out across the Mediterranean, recollecting fragments of memories, reliving triumphs and failures, betrayals and romances. For despite 50 years as an anarchist, living my life reveals a woman who is romantic, with a tendency to feel beauty and love and passion deeply. For Emma Goldman is the kind of revolutionary who says, A revolution without dancing is not a revolution worth having. Emma Goldman spoke out for workers' rights, for women's rights, for women's access to birth control, for living conditions and the rights of poor people, and against industrialism, and most importantly, against capitalism. Capitalism is still our biggest threat, socially, politically, and environmentally. Perhaps we can't all be as dedicated to the cause as Emma Goldman, but there is something we can do, and that is support local businesses. I hope you will buy a copy of Living My Life and if you do, I hope you will order it from your local bricks and mortar bookstore. Supporting independent businesses is important. It supports a strong and robust local economy and that supports a good local community. So please if you are going to buy this book or any book in this series or any book at all, if you are going to buy anything, buy it from an independent business owner. Thank you for listening to She Speaks Volumes. The next episode will be Volume 2 of Living My Life, which I'm really excited about because Emma Goldman's activism lasted through the First World War, the Russian Revolution, the Spanish Civil War, and into the beginning of the Second World War. That episode will be posted on November the 28th. In the meantime, if you'd like to listen to the other episodes in this series, you can listen on the podcast player of your choice or by going to our website, feralculturelab.com. If you like what we're doing here, please like us on Facebook and share the page with your community so that we can make feminist history common knowledge. Organize! Together we are one. Or you won't organize! Together we are one.